What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Art of the Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota, joining you live and direct from the Winnipeg Richardson International Airport. I just got off a flight. Uh, I was hanging out at uh, ML Ops World Conference in Toronto. Huge shout out to the conference. It's a great show. Got, got, got a chance to meet a lot of cool people. Um, thanks for David and Faraz for hosting it. Uh, you guys did an epic, epic job, man. It was a great, great uh, presentation presentation great everything dude so thank you so much for, for doing that a uh, huge shout out to our sponsors for this episode so this episode of the artist data science is brought to you by z by hp get rapid results from your most demanding data sets laptop and data data desktop workstations uh, the data science stack manager provides convenient access to popular tools and updates them automatically to help you customize your environment on windows or ubuntu find out more at hp.com forward slash data science all right let's get right back to it dude there's an episode that was released today with uh the one and only one salting definitely check that out uh it's a great episode had a good time chatting with them uh i'm about to uh take off but vin is now the host uh vin this one is you i'm looking forward to tuning in and looking forward to uh to to see what you guys chat about y'all thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much again for putting up with another uh, hostless episode. Uh, oh shit, Nick Singh is in the building too. Nick, what's going on? Uh, shout out to Nick, Eric, Mario, uh, Jay, good to see you again, Mark, and of course, Russell. Y'all are awesome. I'm out of here. Peace. All right. Welcome. I am not Harpreet, but I'm happy to be hosting this week. Appreciate the illustrious guests showing up. And as usual, everybody's going to come in fashionably late. So I need to stall for a couple of minutes and ask the original question. So learning, everybody wants to know how to learn data science, how to get your first job, how to do that first job task, how to learn, how to learn, how to learn. But nobody teaches you how to learn the stuff that's like feeling impossible. And I talked to my wife and she gave me like this insight into learning that I don't, I don't personally have this. And I don't know if this is common which is that people don't like to feel like they're stupid. And it's not just look stupid, because that's kind of obvious. You don't want to look stupid in front of other people. So you don't want to ask the stupid question. You don't want to say, I don't know. Can you explain it to me? So I get, I don't want to look stupid, but it's a different thought process. I don't want to feel stupid. Like I don't have to even have an audience to feel intimidated by learning. And so there are these kind of concepts where you look at a thing and it's like, even if I get to learn in private, I'm kind of intimidated by a topic. And in data science, we, got, we have a lot of those topics where you can look at a subject matter and just say, that is scary. And I think, you know, in, in talking to people about why don't you go into data science, why don't you want to look at data science, considering you have a good background, considering this is a good field. And I think I hear that sentiment. So I want to kick off with when you see one of those like mental Mount Everests, where you look at it and you say, that could make me feel stupid. How do you, how do you go step two, where you just kind of say, okay, I'm going for it. And how would you overcome that in the past? What was the, I don't know, maybe it's the mental process. Maybe it was the actual steps and the routine that you developed. What was it that took you over Mount Everest? in your mind um maybe i'll go first yep i i 
used to try to be brave and strong and climb Mount Everest. And now I'm a little lazier, a little wiser, whatever you want to call it. But basically, I just don't even try to climb Mount Everest, right? In my head, I forget Mount Everest exists and I try to climb a hill. And I try to find what's the hill I can climb. We'll, we'll do Mount Everest later. But uh, is there a small hill that can give me some confidence that can give me a little dopamine hit that, you know, when I'm on the top of? Um, and I just try to climb bigger and bigger hills. But yeah, I, I always find just trying to break it down to something stupidly simple that you know you can do and then going from there and worrying about it later is my mental hack. So how do you break it down? Because I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is I don't have a frame of reference yet. So how do I break down something I don't really understand very well? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I guess one of those topics is how do you learn data science? Well, don't learn data science, learn SQL. Oh, don't even learn hard SQL. Just just get like a select all query working and just do some basic stuff. Or let's learn Excel. Forget this programming language stuff. Can I do even basic? I think David Langer does a lot of stuff around here around data science with Excel, you know? So that's how, but you're right though. I benefit from maybe being able to break it down just because I know what's already the advanced part. part. So yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I want to hear from others as well. Yeah. Yeah, does anybody else? Oh, really? I'll throw that out there. So- Maybe a couple things. First is not data related. So a few years ago, I, my partner and I wanted to, we wanted to travel more and we wanted to, so the plan was that I was going to do like freelance work and I was going to quit my job. And um, so I had to figure out how to do that. And then we were going to travel full time, which traveling takes a lot of work and a lot of planning. And, and I didn't know how we were going to like literally sell like all our stuff and move into an RV and like do all these things while also changing my employment and everything. And I was a little bit um, unsure about whether or not I could do it or find anybody who would pay for my work or anything like that. And one of the best things that like totally helped me turn the corner on that work side of it was this, I, I got a coach who like, I remember, like, I, there were a couple that I wanted to talk to. And so I was, I, I was talking to her on the phone the first time, and I was kind of telling her what my thoughts were, you know, and, and stuff and my hesitations. And she just, like, called out, like, the BS that she saw, where she's like, are you serious? Like, why wouldn't somebody pay you for this yada yada thing? And like, like, are you serious? You don't believe that there are 10 people in, like, the United States that would pay for, you know, what you want to help them with? I'm like, you know, that's a really good point. You know, it's really helpful to get perspective from somebody who had been there and done that, which I think is an important part of if you're going to find a coach or a teacher, it's important that they can teach you based on somewhere they've been. Uh, and so, so that was, that was a, a big help for me. And from there, that just gave me the confidence to say, like, I don't know exactly what I need to do next. I don't know who those 10 people are that are, that I, I need to find, but I do believe that they are out there. So I'm just going to start working on it and working my way towards it and mistaking my way towards it too, which is fine. The other, other piece <clears throat> kind of riffing off Nick and what you were saying, like, yeah, don't learn data science, learn SQL, learn simple SQL, whatever. So when I started learning Python, um, you know, I mean, I had like a little basics class on Coursera, but then I thought I want to do some data stuff, whatever that means. And so I started looking for projects and then I just found like a, password, a, a big list of hacked passwords. And I thought, I want to like analyze these and try and like figure out if I can see what makes a password more likely to be hacked, you know, from like looking at 2 million passwords. But 
I didn't know how to do that. I didn't, I didn't know how to say like, show me the first letter, sh- the first letter of a string and like, show me all of them and put it into a bar plot. And I just, as I was thinking these things, I thought I got to figure out how to do these things. And so I didn't, I couldn't see the whole path. Like Nick, like you were saying, like that whole world in front of me, all I could see was I need to be able to figure out how to see the first character of a string. And I have to figure out what those words are. And then I have to go to stack overflow and like find questions and answers and read documentation. And when I do that, I find new, it gives me new words to then search for more new words. And then before too long, I start to have vocabulary and be able to participate. And, you know, you can, you know, obviously you can supercharge it by having a good teacher and things like that. But even learning on, even learning on my own, it can be fun to at least discover those words. And then I bring them here and I ask questions that can help me get further than just my own Googling and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's just good points about the power of learning by doing or, or picking a, a practical, pragmatic project. I think that's uh, that's huge because you're right; it forces you to do things and almost structures your learning in a little bit, a little way, and helps you figure out what to ask and you get that vocabulary. I think that vocabulary is a big point too. Once you mm-hmm. know the language, you know what to search for, you know what to Google, and that's that's almost like half of it. It feels like is just knowing what to search on. Oh yeah. Like when I realized that in Panda's documentation, it says array like meant that I could put a list in there. It was like, Oh my gosh, this is great. Now I know what that's talking about. You know, it's like little things like that, that you take for granted. Then you realize at some point that you, you learned that and it made your life a little easier and like, Oh, thank goodness for figuring out what those words all mean. Yeah, I think interesting story about learning from reading and not from hearing people speak is especially with all of the the mathematical terms, you'll hear people mispronounce words and you wonder like, why did you, wait, what did you say? Why did you, you know, like Laplace, you'll hear that mispronounced a lot from people who learn book learning because, you know, we didn't learn from someone who said it and so you'll mispronounce it the first time. And I tell people like, you have to cut people slack because we all learn differently. Go for it. Me? Yep. Oh, okay, cool. I don't think there was a better time for you to ask this question because actually tomorrow, I'm me and my uh, coworkers are actually going on, we basically have this event on Saturday, every quarter, and it's called SQL Saturday, where we get together and we make a presentation about anything. It doesn't have to be SQL related. So I'm actually, my presentation is about the science of successful learning. Because uh, a few months ago, I went into a rabbit hole about just the science of learning because I came across a Reddit post saying uh, a single podcast changed my whole perspective when it comes to learning how to code. And it was a podcast about um, uh, this guy called Andrew Huberman. He's a neurobiology professor at Stanford. And he has this podcast called uh, How to Learn Skills Faster where he talks about neuroplasticity and uh, basically the key concepts about learning. And I could literally talk about for like the next 30 or 40 minutes about that, but I can really summarize, I think that the main key points that I learned um, in the past like two to three months of how to learn how to learn. And um, one is just realizing that the learning process is hard. It's not easy because what's happening is when you're learning something new, you're actually changing your brain. You're changing the physical structure of your brain. And um, it happens when you make mistakes too. So making mistakes is not only 
uh, important, but it's a fundamental step to learn. And that was a really key to me, especially when uh, learning how to code or learning anything. It's actually seeing that when I make mistakes, you have this positive feedback instead of having something negative on you. Because when you make mistakes, you open up your brain for something called plasticity, which is the brain's ability to change itself in reaction to making errors. So when you make mistakes a lot and you just make mistakes, when you finally get it right, that pattern, that pattern solidifies on your brain and it, it, it's gonna stick on your brain for a longer period of time. So uh, making mistakes is really important. Probably the most important part is also repetitions. When you're trying to learn something new, you have to repeat that or you, sh you should repeat that as much as you can in the, the first time you're trying to learn that. And then another also important aspect is called uh, space repetition, where you leave some time between those practices. So let's say I'm learning how to, like, um, like Nick was saying here, I'm learning about SQL, I'm learning some select statements, right? So I learned that uh, a couple of days go by, and then I try to recall that, which is called active recall. I try to recall that from memory without looking at the book first. I try to remember what I learned um, and then just really practice as much as I can. And that is really going to solidify that learning into your brain. Well, I can talk forever about this because I'm making a presentation tomorrow. But uh, basically, repetitions is really good. Um, having the idea that mistakes are actually good, they're not bad. They actually tell you what to focus on. They redirect you on the things that are actually important. Um, those things really changed uh, my um, the way how I go about learning. And there's much more to it because I, I even ended up reading a book called uh, Make It Stick, which was a book published by like two cognitive uh, scientists and one storyteller, which is kind of cool. And basically the entire idea is Active recall is really good. You're trying to remember things that you learned, but you're not looking at the answers. You're just trying to remember things and you're quizzing yourself. Um, this is really important when coming to learning. Repetitions is really good and leaving some space between practices. So when you leave some space, maybe when you go back to the material that you were studying, you feel kind of rusty. And sometimes you feel that that's bad because you're supposed to remember that. But that's actually quite good because it's forcing you to remember things. And the more you do it, the more time you spend doing that thing, the more it's going to stick into the brain. Um, so there's definitely some techniques that you can do. Definitely quizzing yourself is really important. And also just, I guess, getting as many reps as you can, right? I think it, there's a really simple phrase that summarizes everything. It's basically um, the best way to learn or, yeah, the best way to learn something is to do it. So just spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, if it's a really complex topic, like you were saying, try to break it down into smaller steps. Like, okay, maybe I don't understand everything. Like maybe talk about neural networks. Maybe I don't understand how neural network uh, works underneath the hood, but let me try to just understand matrix multiplication. Let me try to understand just a little simple concepts about calculus, just a little simple things. And leave some time, you know, uh, people learning different times uh, one thing that really helps me is to try to change the mindset, meaning um, sometimes we think that I have to learn something in a week or I have to learn something in a month. And your variable is if you, if you can learn that in that time frame or not, meaning 
if I can learn something in a day, then I was successful. But if I can't, I wasn't. Because that person was able to learn in a day, then therefore I have to learn in a day as well. But actually changing those things, meaning I will learn this. It is going to happen. Like this is actually a given. This is a fixed variable. I am going to learn this. Now, the amount of time that it's going to take, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a day. Maybe it's going to be a week or a month. I don't know how much time it's going to take, but I am going to learn this. This also takes a lot of stress out of at least my shoulders because, you know, it just gives me some time to actually reflect and I guess learn on my own pace. So I know I spoke a lot about it, but <laughs> I, I did a lot of research about that topic. <laughs> no, that was all great information. Does anybody else want to jump into this one? Yeah, um, if you don't mind. Yep. Um, so uh, two more things that I want to mention, you know, harkening back to my experiences of being in my first data science esque role and job is that one thing that has helped me, you know, break down the impossible, as you have mentioned it then, was to one, look at how others have kind of approached a similar or smaller or simpler problem and see if you can grasp onto that. There's something that you know in this field. We're not blank slates. There's something that we can grasp on to see, okay, well, I understand that. What if I extended it by just a little bit, right? And see if you can keep understanding the problem space. Sometimes you'll like the approaches and sometimes you'll be like, wow, that, that was not a great approach, but at least I understood where they're coming from. And so let's see if I can alter that so it makes more sense to me. Another one is to reach out to uh, peers, I think, in my opinion, uh, to say for those who have been in a similar circumstance or experience as you, or if you're in the job or looking to be in the job, look out for those who have you know, done this problem maybe in the past or have implemented something similar in the past and ask them, hey, how did you do this? I got caught on XYZ what would be your approach, right? Don't just ask for the answer, right? Because you're not going to learn at that point. Just ask for what was the general approach that you took and see if you can latch onto that and, and you know, make it more your own. And I think that's, those are the other, the, those are the additional two things that I would add. Yeah, those are all good. I kind of want to bring this back though to the fear part, because we're talking about this like engineers, you know, like people who have already learned the hard stuff. And there is that even before you decide, I'm going to, you know, break the problem down. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do these steps or I'm going to go Google some things or I'm going to pick a project to do. There's a fear. There's a genuine, and this isn't a lot of people. There's a fear that's brought in by a lot of the academic system, at least in the U.S. and in places that have similar systems where it's very test-based. If you take a, you know, you have a week, if you take a test and you fail it, you didn't learn it the first time, that's your fault. And there's a reinforcement there where I'll be honest, I never had that. Every time I took a test and failed, I mean, my first thought was, well, why is that my fault? You're the teacher. I couldn't say that out loud, you know, as a third grader, I thought that a bunch of times, but that obviously was frowned upon. My parents prevented me from saying that out loud, but it's really that test cycle, where if you didn't learn it the first time, you're penalized because you failed the test. And I think just watching that reinforced again and again and again, you get into college, you know, if you fail the class, you got to take it again, you got to pay to take it again. You might lose your scholarship, potentially, if you're on a scholarship, there's, and it's like the consequences of failing the test compound, you go for a certification, if you fail the exam. And so we have this, and it bakes in a fear. So how do you, you know, talking to people, 
just from that perspective of fear, how do you personally, have you ever felt that first? And then second, how do you approach the fear? Really not even just the education, but the fear of it. Nick, I saw you nodding your head a little bit. What do you think? I, I remove fear. I, I don't know if I'm the best person to talk. I think that uh, I generally am not scared about these things just because I've done enough scary things. Um, I like, it's been really weird. Um, I, I went skydiving like four or five years ago, kind of randomly. And I, I, you know, people roped me in. I was, you know, whatever. I just did it. But I didn't think that that would carry over into other things. And I know skydiving is kind of cliche as like the exciting, scary thing. But I, I, I definitely have found myself at other times being like, oh, why am I scared of this? I, I jumped out of a plane. Like my legs were actually shaking. That was actually scary. This, this isn't that scary. This is, you know, we're on land. It's, it's all fine. Um, and just by putting myself out there, I've gone through a lot of scary situations to the point now I'm like numb to being scared about things. And I just kind of do whatever. Um, I definitely think that there's something about like, hey, it's not just about being scared to learn data science or scared to learn this or that. I think like just this attitude of scariness, you can build up confidence through sports or running a marathon or what have you, public speaking. It, I feel like it all transfers over, but that's my take. I'm not a psychologist or nothing, you know? Yeah. Eric, have you ever like just felt fear about learning? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not to the point where I can say like, I don't feel fear or I've just, you know, pushed through it or whatever. I totally feel fear. I feel fear. I feel insecurity. I feel stupid. I feel unprepared, uh, you know, and I'm sure I have a host of unhealthy habits that I use to uh, self-medicate and, uh, and deal with it. So I was trying to think of something that I've been scared of and then like done something about. I was also trying to think of something that I'm like actively scared of and doing not much about or somewhere in between, right? Um, less so about learning, um, just because to me, like learning kind of equals Googling and I can Google by myself. It's very low stakes learning because nobody's gonna be like, you stupid, what are you Googling? So it's fine, um, but learning in public or or displaying my knowledge in public when potentially being judged, of course, like is so scary. And so one thing that I do to help myself get through that is phone a friend type thing. <clears throat> you know, like I have, you know, my partner at home who is more daring in some ways than I am and helps me do stuff that helps me not be too boring, um, which is great. But then also at work, I have, you know, just like a handful of people that in one scenario or another, I'm going to message that person, talk through something, you know, think, think out loud before I go and say it in front of a larger group or you just somebody, a few different people. Like if I want to talk about employee engagement and company culture, I'm going to talk to this guy. If I want to talk about what I do with small business and loans and stuff, I'm going to talk to this guy instead. So having a few people that I can go to and trust and talk with makes a huge difference because feeling fear, I'm trying to make a, there's like a connection between for me, like fear and shame, which thrive in isolation. And so getting out of isolation and being able to be vulnerable around someone that you trust can help you, helps me, I'm not going to say it helps you, it helps me get past those things and become 
less afraid, even if I'm still afraid to act. It feels like over time we lose the fear and it's, you know, we get to the point where we are teachers and we forget the fear. And so we don't understand why people don't just go for it, why they don't just take the class, why they don't sign up for the course. Why don't they, you know, why don't you just, you, you've got great potential. And I feel like we forget about the fear. And I've been trying to think about ways, you know, that I can open teaching with an overcoming the fear type of moment. Um, let's do Russell and then let's go from there to Merle again. Just picking up on the fear thing, I think with wisdom comes a better set of tools to overcome fear. Wisdom comes from experience. Uh, and personally speaking, um, my, my favorite ways of getting over fear of, uh, and, I, and I take your, your comments, um, Eric, being very pertinent, fear of shame, fear of embarrassment. It, it tends to be the fear of how the public perception of you will, will be diminished and diminish you in return. Um, so how I've managed to get over that is, is find little micro ways of um, making myself immune to it. So purposefully do things that embarrass myself in public, but to a, to a very small extent that you can bring humor around as well, and be a little self-deprecating and make it seem kind of natural. So if something happens organically that's you know unexpected and a little more embarrassing, at least you've got some kind of muscle memory how to deal with it, even though it might be at a slightly different level. Um, another way that, that, that I do that is if I'm in a group that's learning, I'm one of the people that will ask stupid questions. You know, I like to say there's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, but, you know, if I see something that's, um, you know, that's a connection there that's a little ambiguous, I'll, I'll point it out and I'll say, well, you know, that, that could be this, you know, is there a way we can, you know, clarify between those two things? Or especially if I feel there's um, a vibe with the rest of the class that they want to ask a question and they seem a little disinclined to ask, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Uh, and, you know, I'll be the first person to, to do that. And I think also that tends to break that, uh, that barrier as well. And other people then feel more inclined to, to ask those questions that they were a little disinclined to before. So it's very much about your own self-perception, I think. And if you can start to um, adjust the way you view your self-perception, that's a, that's a great way to approach it. I think there are two distinct uh, types of views when it comes to learning something new. The first one is probably coming from you comparing yourself to others. And the second one is probably coming from uh, simply you're just too intimidated because the topic is too complex. So the first one, I think when you're comparing yourself to others, um, it, Feeling in inadequacy is different than an inexperience. And if you're trying to learn something really hard or just trying to learn something new, I think give yourself some time to just be kind to yourself. And usually when you're feeling inadequate, it's actually simply because you are inexperienced on something. And if someone is better than you, it's simply because not necessarily they're smarter than you, it's just they had more time practicing that thing. And the other one, when it comes to um, you, you are scared because the, the topic is simply too complex. I think everybody else already kind of touched those points, but I think being kind to yourself, uh, breaking things into smaller steps, um, looking for help, um, all, of, all of those things are valid. Nice. Go for it, Jay. All right. Um, so to overcome fear of learning something new, I guess it's sort of been touched on, but I 
uh, I want to say like, don't take it too seriously. It's probably not as high stakes as you're probably making it out to be. Um, just to say the least, you know, de-stress, look at it and just try to take it as you can. And the other one is if it's a huge like field such as data science or even a subfield within data science, take a step back and understand that the field in which it's in now, its breadth was not always that. Some of the things that we take for granted today and some of the methods that we know today and use today were not obvious when they were first found out. And they took years of toiling to try to get it down, right? So that others could use it so that people can stop asking this question so that people can move on and keep searching for better and better. Uh, and I think that would be the other thing to take away from here. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good point. And I, I wish people saw, I learned my very first lessons about data science and machine learning in the 90s. I wish people saw how primitive the stuff I was doing with image detection was. I, I mean, truly, you know, you've got models now that make your own filter. We didn't have that. I mean, if you want to talk about primitive, it's hand creating, you know, edge detection filters, like learning how to do that by hand seems like an abacus. Like literally that's where it felt like I was. And so if you want, you know, to an example of the silliest possible, you know, just look back 25 years and that is, you know, a hundred percent where we used to be. So that's just a great point. I mean, and all the greats in the field, I want you to look at them, you know, starting in the eighties, starting way before I did. So if you think what I did was kind of janky, they, they had even jankier tools before that. And so it's, it's a progression. And I think that's a great point is that learning is a progression too. And when you take it not so personalized, where it's a journey and it's a journey that everybody else has been on. You know, that's a great way to look at it and a great way to think about overcoming the fear is imagine your hero trying to figure out C because undoubtedly it has annoyed pretty much everyone. It has dissuaded pretty much everyone at one point from coding. And I, you know, I wish we could show that to people. Like, can I get a camera on me when I'm messing up my code? Can I get a camera when stuff doesn't work? Like when that one error, I can't figure it out and it's two hours later. I think everybody would feel better about learning if we shared that on LinkedIn. Like that was a LinkedIn live. Watch Nick save Vin from making the same mistake 400 times. Anybody else want to jump in talking about the fear before we move on? All right. So we had one question from AJ in the LinkedIn chat. And it is, uh, hold on just a second. Does anybody else here speak loud to their laptop and themselves during those mistake moments? Yes. Y yes. Sometimes in angry tones. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I say some things that I regret later. I have to apologize to the laptop. But all right. Um, it looks like AJ is transitioning from mechanical, coming in from industry, looks like mechanical and aerospace. And he has the background, the basic background, highly analytical because, well, yeah, mechanical engineering and aerospace has the mathematical side, has the coding, understands the theory behind data science. And he's basically asking, is there, you know, of the three main roles where you say data engineering, machine learning, engineering, and data science, is there coming from a role that's 
you know, fairly similar. Is there a good lead in? Is one better than the other to try starting out in versus, you know, them all being essentially equivalently different? So does anybody have any answers on that? Because when I look at it, I'll be honest, it, you know, from the mechanical side, I always go towards engineering because you've already got that engineering background. But I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks. I jump in first with a non-answer because I'm unqualified. Yes. All right. So my non-answer would be it's from what I have seen across companies, the same job title and its actual job description or the actual job work can vary so wildly that it's worth talking to somebody who actually does it company or, you know, certain companies to get a feel for what that title might actually mean to them and how it might actually relate to you because it's so subjective across employers. The end. No, I think that's huge. Yeah. The, the, the job title, I did a, an applicant tracking system for resume screening. And that was one of the problems that I had to solve was the fact that one job title could mean 45 different things. And there was zero consistency across. There were people who had a job title that were undertitled. There were people who were overtitled. There were, I mean, the gymnastics I had to do to alias job titles was amazing. Ended up just classifying what they said they did it was simpler. If you can imagine that, instead of figuring out aliases for job titles, classification was easier. So yeah, that's a great point is that job titles and data science don't necessarily mean what you think they mean. And I'm thinking that's going to be the answer is it depends. It depends on what they do and how close it matches to your current capability set. So I'm just going to leave that one as is. Um, if anybody else has questions, throw them into the chat, either here or on LinkedIn. I've got one other question I want to get into, but I will break that if I... If I end up seeing somebody come in with a question, because this one's a little bit, I don't know, call it philosophical. I look at where we are with data science. I look at what companies do with data science. I look at what some companies have done abusively with data science. And, and I'm starting to ask the question, are we, I mean, as people, do we have the capacity to use the technology we have? I know that sounds like a little bit of a sarcastic question, but it seems like data science in some cases is a little too big for us. Like it's a technology that could do a whole lot more if we let it and got out of the way. And if we decided to use it more selectively, more intelligently to solve problems that it was best to solve instead of just throwing everything at it. And it feels like we've moved too fast. Like we went from basic software to web, to mobile, to cloud, to data, to analytics, to machine learning. And most of us mentally are still back in software. And it feels like that's where most companies kind of are. And most people's thinking and comfort level is, is back with that software paradigm. And it's a completely different paradigm. And when you try to fit machine learning into that, you end up doing some things irresponsibly, not always intentionally, sometimes intentionally knowing what could go wrong. But do we really have everything we need as individuals, but also as businesses to actually use machine learning? Or is this something that we really we're just not ready for, even though it is, you know, maybe the first technology that's technically feasible, 
before it is people feasible. I want to know if anybody has some thoughts on that. If we kind of out, has the technology run faster than we can? I, I don't, I don't think, I don't really believe that. I, I think that uh, it's doing as it does. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's too fast or too slow. I think it's just like a case of it is what it is. Um, I think that like, you know, it's easy maybe because we know about ML to be like, oh, I think people are using it wrong or people are still stuck in their own ways. But I'm sure people were saying that about software or people who are really good at software and cloud. Look at people with on-prem today and they're like, oh man, they're behind. And I'm sure there are people with on Web3 looking at fintech companies from five years ago being like, oh, these are not so great. And I'm not a Web3 fintech expert, so I can't comment there. I know my way around coding. And so maybe I can say there, but I'm sure there this exists in every field where it's like, oh, wow, we're moving really fast. But there's a lot of people stagnating or, you know, they need to catch up. But I just think that's how innovation happens in every field. It's just that we know our field. So we can say that, but we don't know what's happening with CRISPR or biotech or gene editing or mRNA vaccines. And, you know, we, we can't weigh in there, but I'm sure they feel the same way. Well, and it's, but it's not so much that what I look at with, with this isn't so much that people are behind a curve, like you're supposed to be further ahead. What it really feels like is one of the powers of data science and machine learning is its ability for decision-making and decision support and the ability to make better decisions about, but as humans, we are absolutely worthless decision-makers. And it's, I mean, we're just so bad. And there are so many of these cognitive biases that prevent us from looking two steps ahead, three steps ahead. And so my curiosity is, can we actually use this? Is there a maturity that has to happen because we're used to software that just automates. It does whatever we tell it to. You know, if you tell software, do this, it does this, or that's outside of what it can do. Whereas things like Alexa, ask it a question, maybe you get the right answer. Maybe you get something that's complete gibberish. As we begin to get these things and these tools that have a level of parity when it comes to capabilities, meaning that Sometimes if you ask a person to do something, you get a great work product, but every once in a while they pretend to be more capable than they are, or we assume they're more capable than they are. And they end up uh, kind of failing us a little bit. You know, do we have the ability to use machine learning appropriately? Do we have those tools at this point, or is it, you know, are we still stuck in the software paradigm where we expect it to always work? And it's not like that. I don't know if I like fully understand like the different, you know, the different paradigms. Um, so this is kind of the first time I've talked about it, but a couple of thoughts come to mind. I don't think that, you know, I don't think that we as uh, a larger, you know, species are necessarily going to benefit from something like machine learning um, as much as we could um, in the future. But I do think that there are people who can use it to, I don't want to say to its fullest extent, because we're never going to be there, but there are people who can use it well. And it's probably something that we, because it's so big and because it's so powerful, it's probably something that, you know, no one person is maybe grown up in air quotes, you know, grown up enough um, to use well. And I, cause I was kind of thinking about it, like, you know, when I was a kid and I had a pocket knife, you know, it's like an adult can use this pocket knife to 
turn a stick into something that looks really nice, um, something cool. I was barely capable of doing something without cutting myself. And yet I still felt as a older kid, like I had the skills and pride, like I can handle this or whatever, but really I was a stupid 10 year old and just didn't see my own stupid 10 year oldness because I wasn't a stupid 11 year old yet who could look back on my stupid 10 year oldness um, to be able to, to look down, look down my nose at myself. Um, so that's, that's one piece. And the other piece that I just was thinking about, as you were talking about, like the, the progression of technology over time is that we built, we built this city on advertising. And so instead of building the internet on something that we could, on something different, you know, it's, it wasn't, it's not a, it's not a, pay model to participate in the internet right and so instead we built it on this advertising model so we deeply 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 ingrained funding and corporate greed and things like that into what we're now like putting tons of our data on top of and now putting machine learning into that and so I know there's so much other stuff that machine learning can be used for, but I think that we have like incentivized the use of machine learning to make money so intensely that it's, it's, it, I guess, you know, yes, it, we have the ability and there are, you know, to think how we can use this in like a, a noble, helpful way, but so did the people who invented the internet. Ask Al Gore, he did. And, uh, you know, so whoever, whoever invented the internet, like, they had the right mindset of it being a free place, knowledge and yada, yada. And, you know, and it has grown into what it is. And so what's going to keep any other technology, be it machine learning or something small um, or, you know, from kind of like going, going in that, in that same direction. So I guess that's kind of my answer. Now, Russell, you've got some, you've got some good things in the chat and then Jay, I want to hear from you on this too. So, Russell, if you're, you look lagged. So if you're not with us, just, you know, blink twice. No, I think I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. So I was saying, uh, coming back a couple of steps. Um, so yeah, technology's running at or moving at different speeds in very, very many different directions. So it depends on, you know, the, the person and what they're doing as to whether they are, you know, ahead of the curve or behind the curve. So that's a real complicated mesh and there's going to be, many in, in different areas. So um, I'm not sure if I've gone back too, too far there, but what I then went on to say was, you know, I, I suspect it won't be very long until we have some NLP models that we can just say to them with a voice prompt in the mic, you know, build me a, a learning model to, um, to analyze bias. And I think I said in social engineering or in anything, you know, uh, you know, analyze something for me, build me a model for this, that's going to be completely unsupervised. Um, that's going to, you know, take a, a million data points and um, feed something out, and it'll it'll code this perfectly, and you know within 24 hours we'll have something that we can work with. I I suspect that we're not too far away from that point now. I guess somewhere in the next five to ten years. Um, although perhaps I'm being a little bit too uh, too positive about that, but you know technology is moving very very quickly. Um, and there was one last little quip that I put in there, which was just um, in response to what Eric was saying about uh, wisdom. Um, and I just said, the only fuel for wisdom is experience. 
and experience comes from time well applied to events, uh, which usually comes from age. So yeah, you, you need to experience things to get the wisdom from it, and then the wisdom helps you um, apply your actions better. However, I was in the middle of typing that uh, it is also possible to share wisdom with other people that are open to it. So if you have an open mind, you can, you can get additional wisdom from others who are willing to share. And likewise, you can share your wisdom with others that are willing to, to learn. But you, you very much got to be open to it. So, um, you know, break down the boundaries of, of vanity and uh, um, protectionism and all that kind of stuff. You're eager to learn. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure this community here, all of these people in the, in the data and ML community on LinkedIn are the type of people that I think do learn from, from others' wisdom. So, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. Jay, what do you think? Um, I think it will come down to quality quantity because there's already a bunch of data out there. It's whether or not we want to use that data. Uh, and so the hop off of Russell's point where you could just speak and say, hey, build me a model doing this, you run a very large risk of what data is it pulling? Is that the data we want here? What biases are baked in the data? Will that cause social dereliction or harm, et cetera, et cetera. And so to go back to the question, has tech run further than we have? No, I don't think so. I think tech, at least with data, has encoded what we are in a sense, at least in that time shot and time frame. And if we're not careful and we don't see where these biases come from, they will propagate forward and cause problems down the line. Um, and so it's always constant vigilance. Someone has to look at the data. Someone has to see, hey, wait a second, something's not quite right here. Uh, we've caused a harm and now we gotta somehow undo that. It's, it's, it's never ending. It's just a theme in, in, in a sense, but you know, it's what it is. All right. I appreciate everybody's thoughts on that. We got a question from Harpreet and it's his show. So if I don't ask this question, I think I'm fired. He may just basically boot me after that one. Um, so he's asking, how do you evaluate a new tool or a library or framework for a particular use case? And my answer is just why bring another one on board? Like I make someone literally defend their lives before I let them bring a new tool in. <laughs> it's literally a death match. Where And everyone kind of knows that because tools get expensive fast and even the free tools get expensive because eventually you realize that free tool now is duplicating something else. And so you have two very smart people in love with two completely different tools for exactly the same thing. And if you don't deathmatch every tool before you let it in and let the team decide okay, we've all been satisfied, it has emptied the ring and it has survived the gauntlet, then at some point you'll have two data scientists like fencing each other in the hallway or something. And I, uh, yeah, I, I make people defend their tools to the end. I think that's my, uh, that's my contribution is the old man who says, why do we need another tool to do the same thing? I got a flip phone, this phone works. I don't need an iPhone. Python, who needs it? I got Java. C is even better. So how do you evaluate a new tool from some people who don't have as much gray hair as I do? All right, Nick, I'm just going to call you out. It's on you. You got to save the day. I, I don't, I did a little bit of the sales and marketing stuff. So I was the one trying to figure this question out too. How can I, uh, help. Uh, I used to work at a geospatial data company called Safegraph that had like alternative data around stores and how many people visited those stores. And we tried to sell those data sets to data scientists and ML teams. 
at real estate companies and you know hedge funds and things like that. So I, I always went the other way. <laughs> like, how do I figure out how do we can sell some of this data? And I'm sure uh, Harpreet is figuring that out too. At um, I think he just got a new job at Pachyderm. Is that what it's called? So I, uh, I, I want to hear from y'all because I, I don't think I'm the right person. I all, more of my thing has been on the other side. Uh, and then we'll see. And then we'll see if I, if I know what I'm doing today. Anybody else want to dive in on this? Has anybody else had a, the opportunity to do a tools evaluation? Right. Uh, couple ideas. I mean, the most basic thing that comes to mind for me from from when I was doing some of that in a previous role was to say, like, really understand what is it that we as a company need, because pretty much all of these tools are about the same. They're all going to be pretty much the same. So is it that we are going to be price sensitive? Is it that we want like a specific feature because we really need it. And so like, even though 80 to 90% of the product is the same, if this one has that extra feature, that ability to help us like visualize our workload, or it integrates with some other tool that we have, or it has a smoother Salesforce integration or something like that, like you've got your table stakes covered. What is it that we as a company need? Because Nick is going to come with his bells and whistles, all, all a jingling and a whistling um, to tell us why they think their product is the best. But if I don't know why, what is best for me, then yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to buy whatever and be in the market again or frustrated uh, with somebody who wanted to buy it soon enough. So I think being crystal clear on, on my own needs is maybe is probably like the most important first step for it for evaluating it. And then I guess from a trying it perspective, I think, again, it's just like, I want to talk to people that you have worked with. So I used to like, I used to sell consulting services and like smart people ask for references because they want to know like, were they going to get their money's worth? And I was more than happy to furnish those references so that people could understand because I wasn't doing the consulting. So I couldn't tell them any more than like why I thought we were awesome but I hadn't bought our services for my, for my own use. Right. And so getting like testimonials, social proof uh, from like people who've actually like tried it is again, just like just money because they've implemented it and they can tell you what the pitfalls are. On the, on the other end, like if I'm buying something, I think one thing I saw, I guess, on both sides of the table of trying to sell as well as buy different tools and data sets and services is that uh, I think, and this actually goes back to what you were saying, Ben, about like decision-making and humans are bad. Like, let's say a tool costs 20K and a better tool that requires less time to implement or work with costs 30K. We as people are like, whoa, 10K is a lot of money. But then we forget about the loaded in cost of each employee. You know, let's say these data folks are earning 150K a year loaded into the business. It costs them 200K a year, right? Suddenly you're like, oh, well, if, you know, one-tenth of your job is wrangling this tool because we didn't go with the option that's, you know, 10K more dollars, but it's much simpler to use. Suddenly, you know, you've made a wrong decision. And I think it's because when we're evaluating tools, it's so easy to think of us as consumers like, oh, wow, this is 40K or wow, my lawyer charges me $400 an hour. This is terrible. What a ripoff. Because it's hard for us to put on our business cap and be like, oh, my lawyer is saving me from this big legal problem or, you know, smoothing out this process. That's a $50,000 process. Yeah. I'll pay my lawyer 500 an hour. Um, 
So that's what I've seen. Um, like people forget about the time cost. Um, something unrelated, sorry, related, but not exactly towards buying software, which is like you call for a group meeting, you know, and you've got 10 people who each cost the business, you know, 150 an hour. Suddenly you realize your quick 30 minute meeting is like, you know, a thousand dollar expense yet. It's like, hey, can we get pizza for the meeting? Oh, you know, we don't have 30 bucks for that. Or, you know, I mean, I haven't worked at companies where they couldn't buy pizza, but, you know, we forget that these meetings of just, you know, 10 people all highly paid cost the business a lot of money. And we're just so bad about thinking about that when it comes to making decisions, whether it's for buying a tool or just calling a meeting. Yeah, I think one of the things that has saved me from bad tools is asking how does that tool cement itself in so it'll be impossible to get rid of because tools have gotten really good at making it so hard to replace them when they start to be terrible that it's like that's a superpower in the productivity marketplace and the digital transformation you know automation tools ml ops everything is like they get so deeply dug into your infrastructure that you can never get rid of them you know, when I look at not only how easy is it to integrate them the first time around and get everything I need running and how much service they provide and how much help they provide, it, it, because that costs more than buying the tool in the first place, you know, and it's, then it's the, well, and what if it's no longer what we need? You know, when the, when we outgrow the tool, how much is it going to cost me to get rid of it and get something bigger? Because a lot of times it's easier to just get the one that there's no way for you to outgrow as long as the initial setup costs aren't too high. And that's horrible for small vendors. And I get that. And I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just say that. But it, it sometimes is the right way to go to get something that can't be outgrown, something that you know will be, you know, perpetual and never let you down. Like Amazon, they're never going to give me up. And never going to let me down. So it's good to, it's almost good to go with that size of a company, in my opinion. And there's a saying out there, nobody gets fired for going with IBM. Nobody gets fired for, you know, going with Deloitte or, or Accenture or one of those companies. And it's really, it's really the truth. And yes, Coast, if I had to, it just, it was too easy. It's Friday. It, we're getting, we're getting punchy. All right. Anybody else want to chime in on your evaluation framework? Because I could give a bunch of like canned consulting answers, but I think they're all pretty lame. So I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go down that road. All right, Costa, jump in. Yeah. Hey guys, I guess I'll throw down more on the, on the supplier management kind of side, right? So one of the things that I, I mean, in the last year or so, um, finally started working with two things, a, uh, a labeling service, as well as a labeling platform, right? Um, and the two things that I've found is uh, it's very easy to underestimate, as you said, how sticky some of these products can get into your overall system, right? That comes down to essentially good old-fashioned clean architecture, right? I, um, I spent most of last weekend listening to Uncle Bob again and about like abstraction layers and things like that. It's on us as engineers to basically be able to define what, remains sticky based on how much attention we give to the architectural layers between it right now are we letting a particular data structure through because it's easy it's already in a json i can do it let's just stick with that i can't be bothered you know converting that into you know a more standard format or something else so that's on us those decisions that we make to 
save time often make them more sticky. And we're doing that to move at speed, right? So that's something that I've been revisiting is how do we integrate our labeling platform into our overall system to make that, I'm not so concerned about it being too sticky because it's a good platform. It's more about de-risking the project for us, right? Uh, that's where it really comes down. On the other side, what is very easy to slip, and this comes in evaluation, is manpower and time and forecasting. If you don't put enough time into forecasting how much volume you're trying to push, if you don't put the right models into how much time it actually takes to label your data sets, and I'm talking mostly vision data sets here, they're very expensive to label. They don't, unfortunately, come pre-labeled, right? Especially when you're working custom areas. Um, it adds up a significant chunk of cost. And you sometimes... And it can surprise you what the bottlenecks are. So unless you're, you're taking a fine-grained microscope as you're doing it, um, it's quite easy to miss those bits of the whole process that are actually costing you a bucket load of money. And you've just got expensive ML engineers or data engineers. And I'm doing it because they're like, oh, you know what? It's easier than setting up a process and finding a supplier. We know what we're doing. We'll just do it. But if they're spending an hour every day doing that, starts to add up right um but that's that's essentially where i see the connection back to uh, sticky suppliers and back to how do you value time on a, on a project right is you've got to be able to keep that fine fine-grained microscope on uh, at all times essentially thank you costa uh anybody else want to jump in before we dive quickly i think i'll do like a 60 second drill into mike nash's question because he asked it about 10 minutes ago and he's been waiting in the queue. Anybody else want to talk through vendor evaluation or tool evaluation? All right, we are on the last question. So uh, Mike Nash asked for business executives that don't understand data science and engineering fully. What are key points you wish they understood to make things easier? And I'm going to give like the 60 second. He said, please feel free to vent. I'm not going to do that, but I'll give everyone else like a good 60 seconds each if you want to actually vent. My one would be not every problem is a data science problem, not every problem is a data problem, not every problem is an analytics problem. A lot of problems are software engineering problems. And if you have a data science team that's trying to talk you into every problem is a data science problem, start firing people until they stop because that will immediately focus your data science team on like some really high value stuff that you can't do with anything else. So anybody else want to talk through that? What do you wish executives knew? What do you wish business business owners, stakeholders, product managers, what do you wish they knew? Well, I guess that was the answer. Nobody else wants to vent on a Friday. Well, Nobody's feeling like just opening fire. Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it down. Um, all right. Well, here's, here's the interesting thing, right? It, it depends on, on, their, on their experience. Some of them really understand scientific process really well. Others are come from very different backgrounds, right? And that's kind of why you end up in this weird mess. We have an expectation that leaders in the company, it's kind of our expectation management, right? It's let's flip it on us a little bit. We expect leaders of a company to know exactly the details of what goes on to make that company, company operate well, but often they're coming from totally different backgrounds, right? They might be coming from an operational space. They might be coming from a, a financial space. They might be coming from all sorts of places, right? So it's on us to understand what is it that they don't understand and communicate that back to them. So I guess the best qualities I like to see is they're able to listen and, and identify when they don't know the best way through something, right? So the ones who don't listen, the ones who are just, you know, 
a bit bullheaded and say, no, we're going to solve it this way because it solved their problems before without understanding the nuance of, uh, of this particular space, because this is a nuanced space and it is a complicated space that a lot of people haven't traversed before. It's understanding the risks associated with that and having the humility to kind of go, okay, let's step back a second. What we did before might not work in this situation. Awesome. Really, you looked like you were about to, you were about to get yourself in a little trouble on a Friday. Don't worry. No one's watching except, you know, no one's watching. Don't worry. You can, and don't worry about this being taped either. You heard the recording thing. It might get iffy. Go ahead. Okay. Um, meetings that could have been emails. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a big one. Um, I don't know. I, people with big ego, I think. Uh, one thing is when you work with people and they're open to your, I guess, suggestions. And I don't know, I just, have, I, I, I fail to have empathy with people that uh, have big egos. And like uh, how um, Klaus was saying, um, like when you're offering a different solution, because the problem may seem the same, but it's really not. And they're like, let's just do this. We, we've done before and they're stuck in like old ways and they fail to just be open to new ideas, you know, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a huge point that on both sides, just that openness to new ideas and even like both sides of technology. We have a traditional IT organization, you have a software engineering organization, and then you have the sort of new school data organization, and just being open to each other, you know, and kind of going back to don't, don't use a nuclear weapon for really small anthills. Jay, do you feel like there's something that you want to you want to share with the group? I think I'll hold my peace. Okay, I understand that. We'll, we'll expect you to share at the next group. All right, that was my best interpretation of Harpreet hosting his office hours that he actually somehow skidded into from the airport. He literally got up off the airplane ran to that seat, opened his laptop and helped me log in so we could do this show. So that's some dedication. If you can support him, support Pachyderm, give him a little bit of like, a little bit of reshare, talk to people about the Artist Data Science podcast that he also has where he interviews nothing but illustrious guests. And I am not being sarcastic about that. He's making me jealous in some cases about the people that I've wanted to talk to my entire career. And he's just like, hey, can you come on my show? They're like, yeah. So he has an amazing podcast. Don't forget about the Artist Data Science podcast. And I appreciate everybody coming, everybody asking questions, everyone participating, everyone um, playing along with a little bit of the therapy session that we had at the very end. And everybody have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Take care of yourselves.